0: Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free.
1: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
2: Hi, Alex. Hi, Manoush. Today, I have New Tech City producer Alex Goldmark in the studio with me. And Alex, you know how much I love to tell juicy personal stories on this show. I sure do. Well, since today we're talking about ethics and privacy, here goes. The summer after my 18th birthday, I worked in the medical records department of a psychiatric clinic. My job was super boring. I had to photocopy all the notes from each patient's therapy session. And this was before everything was computerized. So on my first day, the head of admin pulled me aside to administer a pledge to me. A pledge not to share anything private that I happened to read while I did all my boring photocopying.
3: This is like a Hippocratic Oath, but for file monkeys.
2: Exactly. And I thought it was kind of weird because why would I tell anyone about my filing job, right? Until one day... Standing there at the copy machine, copying another file one page at a time, I realized I knew this patient. She was my friend's ex. And I saw my friend's name on every single page, and I was dying to tell my buddy. But then I remembered
0: The oath. The
2: oath. everyone. It's New Tech City. I'm Manousa Marodi. And today, Alex Goldmark and I are going to get to the moment of truth when it comes to data, tech, privacy, and morals. Without being preachy, though, I hope.
3: Right. We've all been hearing a lot about privacy and technology. But with Edward Snowden and the NSA revelations...
2: But we've kind of felt like it's been sort of abstract. And then I remembered that moment I had in the psychiatric clinic... And it reminded me that there's always a very personal decision that has to be made when it comes to information and privacy.
3: So you and I, we went out and we found people who are making the new digital equivalent of the same decisions that was made by Teenage Manoush at the photocopy machine. (laughs) Something like that. The keepers of our personal information online, but, you know, just kind of like in that manila folder.
2: Except these people are way smarter. They are the data scientists. They are the internet entrepreneurs.
3: They and the companies they work for decide every day about what's acceptable and what's not when it comes to privacy. So we're going to hear from people like the founder of an email service who shut down his company when the government came to snoop. And another man who couldn't tell his dying father that he was the guy in a lawsuit that threatened to end all of the snooping in the Patriot Act.
2: Okay, but before Alex gets all NSA on us, we're going to set this discussion up. When we say privacy, what do we mean? Well, I chatted with Brad Rosen. He's a lawyer here in New York who also teaches a class called Law, Technology, and Culture at Yale.
0: Who cares? So what? So what? (laughs) And another thing. Who
1: cares? Right.
2: So he's also kind of a nut. (laughs) Um, But Brad says that we can boil it down to three ways that we generally react to invasions of privacy. So, for example, I told him that I use Google Docs and other Google apps – and I guess I know, right? That Google can access all the documents that I write and all my emails. But at the end of the day, I'm just glad that their services work and that they're free.
0: So in your case, with the you know the Google Docs, you know this is I I, I come up with clever things only because I have students. But I call it the Joy Behar theory of privacy because you know there's a famous Saturday Night Live sketch of Fred Armisen don't, saying, "Don't know, don't care." Who cares? So what? So what? And another thing: Who cares? From Joy Behar's famous. <laughs> you do that very well. View. You know, I've had
2: some. <gasps> oh, <laughs> gets me, me every time. So, I mean, in an extremely amusing way, what he's saying is that we're turning a blind eye to what Google and Facebook and all those other services could glean from the photos, the documents, the emails that we entrust with them. That is pretty much our number one reaction to privacy. But we, the users, are also creating our own societal norms online. You know, as we go along, and that's number two.
0: I use the example of what I call the "not cool bro" theory of privacy, the really or "broette" as the case may be. (laughs) So let's say you have a friend on Facebook who you now become um, an ex-friend, or say an ex-boyfriend or girlfriend, and you block them from viewing your Facebook wall. And every day, one of your otherwise mutual friends takes a screenshot of your Facebook wall and emails it to this person that you've blocked.
2: Like if someone posted and tagged a photo of my kid running naked through a sprinkler, right? Posting the photo doesn't violate the law, but I'd rather you not do it. So it's not not cool, bro. bro. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then there's – that one annoyed me actually. And then there's number three, what Brad and others call privacy advocacy theater.
0: Which is – This is not a true threat to privacy, but it's something that has been seized on and pointed to.
2: For example, Brad thinks it's a waste of time that Google is being sued for scooping up unprotected data with its Google mapping mobile. He doesn't think that Google was being malicious. I'm not sure that I agree with him, but... As Brad says,
0: nobody draws the line at privacy in the same place. What they consider to be private information is going to differ from person to person. So at a certain point, we just have to draw a line like with speed limits. We just arbitrarily say 65, 55. Same thing with privacy.
2: Yeah, but when it comes to setting the speed limit, the government decides. They're the ones who are in charge of the roads. So who should be in charge of policing online privacy? Maybe there should be some sort of ethical guidelines for the people with whom we entrust Our information.
3: Something like the oath you took before you turned on that Xerox copier, except this is for techies and now.
2: Exactly. Something that made me stop and think before I opened my big mouth, right? (laughs) So this would be, though, like a data Hippocratic oath. And for this show, Alex, God, you already know this, we decided to run with this concept. All the way. Summed it up. He's like, I want everyone to go home and have a total existential crisis over the weekend. (laughs) So that was me moderating a panel about data and ethics the other week. The event was called Data Gotham, and we asked the audience, made up of coders and programmers, you're dealing with our data every day as part of your jobs. What would you think of a code of ethics for techies, and what should that code be?
1: For data scientists, first command would be... First commandment, um... Wow, that's a hard one. First commandment would be... I guess that's anonymized users, don't make anything personally trackable. Preserve privacy as much
4: as you can as a data scientist.
5: Think about how your users would feel if they knew what you were doing.
1: Um, so that's where I would start. I think it's important for data scientists to have a code of ethics.
5: I think it's a good idea. I'm not sure if we're there yet, but I think it's a great idea.
1: Everything we do in data science is working with other people's lives.
5: They have a lot of power. In our society right now?
1: Tremendous amounts of power. On a website, you can track where someone's mouse is, or you can track um, what they click on, or you can track both. And some people will say, I want to do one or the other or both. And, and, and the analysts want to necessarily you know why that choice was made. Intent matters a lot.
2: So Oftentimes. intent matters. These people were totally into the idea. But Alex, you talked to some people who have already basically sworn themselves to an oath to protect their users' privacy.
3: I want to talk to people who built their businesses on a pledge not to violate privacy. The most famous right now is Lavabit, an encrypted email service like Gmail or Hotmail, but designed for privacy.
2: And this company has been getting a lot of attention because it had a pretty famous client, Edward Snowden, the NSA leaker.
3: And the government has good reason to want to know what kinds of emails Snowden was sending. But LavaBit email is encrypted and anonymous by design. So the guy who built the company, Ladar Levison, well, he's an
5: interesting character. I've been going through a journey. You know, it's been a progression of different things.
2: Yeah, actually, I saw him here in the waiting room at WNYC before you were coming to get him. And Alex, he looked kind of jittery. And and, well, he had a big can of Red Bull in his hand.
3: And he brought us donuts. (laughs) He really cares about privacy. And just listen to this story. After the Snowden leaks come out back in May, the government shows up at Levison's house, and then there's a few back and forths, and the government asks for the encryption keys to his whole
5: company so that the government could read every email of every client. He didn't like that. It put me in an ethically compromising position, yeah. I was being trusted to run a secure and private service. That's what I advertised. And if... I felt that if I was no longer a secure and private service because I was sharing information uh, with the federal government in an uncontrolled and unaudited manner, I would be breaking that promise that I was making through my website. And that was the ethical quagmire that I was placed
2: in. That kind of makes me sad. Did he know that the government was coming for him? I guess no one expects the Spanish Inquisition.
3: Well, not not this Inquisition anyway. The way the government asked for the data was a little nutty. Um, Okay, try to follow this because it's a little confusing. When I asked him to tell me exactly how the government asked him for all this data, he said he couldn't talk about it. But then he gave me this hypothetical case about a hypothetical telephone company where the telephone company gets a
5: warrant that it isn't even allowed legally to read. Uh, It's possible uh, for the FBI to be served a warrant uh, for a number of accounts with a classification level that would actually make it illegal for them to share it with the service provider. You would need a security clearance and a background check before you could look at
3: the warrant that you have to obey.
5: (laughs) So as the operator of this telephone company, once I've given them access, I really have no idea who they could be listening to or what information they could be collecting. And they wouldn't need to tell me. In fact, it may even be illegal for them to tell me. Imagine that
3: you're served a warrant that you don't have a clearance to read, (laughs) so you don't know exactly who they want you to help them snoop on. So they say to you, okay, then you have to let us snoop on everyone.
2: So they won't have to tell you who they actually do want to snoop on. I mean, I'm laughing. I'm laughing because it's so freaking absurd. It's like Kafka-esque.
3: It boggled my mind. So... He was basically confronted with this choice. Do I break the law or do I break a pledge to my clients? Right. Levison had his own ethical code to not betray the trust that people put in him. And he decided that rather than let the government look through every one of the emails from every one of his clients, or at least hypothetically, (laughs) he tried to fight it. And then he did a few back and forths. And when he eventually loses that fight and absolutely has to hand over those encryption keys – He shuts down his company and all the servers.
2: And his case is still going on, right, Alex?
3: Right. His case is still going, which means that when he was here, he couldn't talk too much about the details. But I really wanted to know, what is it like at the moment when you get served a letter like this? Mm -hmm. So I went and I found one of the few people who can talk about getting a letter like this because he went through the exact same experience a decade ago. Nicholas Merrill. He founded an Internet service provider, called Calix, and back in 2004, he gets a visitor.
4: There was a a real serious knock at the door, you know. And when I opened the door, there was an agent straight out of Central Casting with a trench coat. FBI. Uh, The agent gave me this letter, and uh, I opened it right there in the presence of the agent, and I read the letter. A national security letter. And the letter directed me to hand over tons of information about one of the clients of my company And it also directed me that I could never tell any person that I'd received this letter.
3: Not another human, no person ever, or up to five to ten years
4: in prison. And when I got to that paragraph, the part that had the non-disclosure provision in it, I said to the agent, what about my lawyer? And the agent refused to answer my question and just said something to the effect of, you know, I'm just delivering this letter.
2: I'm surprised that the letter didn't self-destruct. So... Alex explain why can this guy talk now?
3: He fought the national security letter and he got the help of the ACLU and he kept fighting it for 6 years, winning most of the time, all the way up until the government backed down just before the Supreme Court would have heard the case. So he was the doe in Doe v Ashcroft. That's as in John Ashcroft, the former Attorney General in the Bush era. I mean We're talking that this guy, Nicholas Merrill, is the man behind the most prominent case that challenged the right to wirelessly wiretap under that famous Patriot Act, that that national security law that passed really hastily after 9-11. I mean, heavy stuff. He couldn't tell anyone, though. This is front page news all along. But during this long fight, he still couldn't talk about it. And he's in this crazy situation. And eventually it wears him down.
4: To be under a nondisclosure provision like this does damage to one's personal life um, because you you distance yourself from other people and, and it creates uh, a wall, an emotional wall between you and those who are closest to you, the people who would form your emotional support network in a time of stress.
3: When his lawyer would call, he had to go outside to talk about it. If a coworker asked him, hey, what do you think about that big Patriot Act case? He had to pretend that he hadn't heard about his own case.
4: Uh, yeah, it, it really caused me to perhaps permanently change uh, in terms of personality, where, where I can just handle being, feeling isolated. Okay, get sad here, manush His father was dying at this time. It's pretty clear. My dad, my dad's days are numbered. He's not going to be around that much longer. Uh, maybe I should just tell him, maybe I should come clean just so I can feel like I haven't been hiding all kinds of stuff from him. But in the end, I, I didn't think I could do it because, well, he was all—he was on all this medication and stuff. He was on like morphine, and I was like afraid that I don't know, maybe he would say something, and it would have been uh, cathartic to just sort of, you know, to come clean with with my family. But he was worried about going to prison.
2: But. We need to look at the other side, right? There are many who would say that all this prying and secrecy is for the good of the country, that we shouldn't knee-jerk cast the United States government as the bad guy. Fair enough. Okay, and remember earlier in the show when I told you about that Data Gotham panel that I spoke at and I moderated this discussion about ethics and data. Well, the guy who invited me to moderate is Drew Conway.
1: At the NSA or anyone in the intelligence community for that matter, these people take their jobs incredibly seriously.
2: And the reason why Drew knows that they take their jobs incredibly seriously is because he used to work in counterterrorism as a computational social scientist for U.S. intelligence. I'm not even really sure what that means, but he said that we need to remember that intelligence agents are people too, and they're just doing what it takes to protect the country, what they feel that they have to do.
1: And they take your privacy as U.S. citizens incredibly seriously to the point where they wake up in the morning, they live it, they breathe it, they eat it for breakfast, they care about it very, very deeply.
2: So Drew was an intelligence, but this is interesting, he went into startups so he can compare the other side.
1: My experience in the startup community, in the commercial community... Has not been met with the same kind of vigorous care. The assumption is, oh, the NSA, the you know Joe analyst at the NSA is sitting there, you know, reading people's email. This is, exact, is absolutely not the case. Right? These people care very, very deeply about uh, people's privacy, and there are very, very strong laws in place, and a very, very big jail at Fort Leavenworth where people go to if they break them.
2: Basically, he thinks our information is actually safer with the government than it is with any of these private companies. Comforting. Yeah, and weirdly it is, actually. These government employees collecting data are human beings. They play by the law, he says. That is their code of ethics. So let's just restate this. There are two groups of people collecting our data, people who work for the government and those that work to make money. And they're just different players in parallel roles. They both sit just a few keystrokes away from some deep personal secrets, one temptation away from sharing them.
3: Little manouche in front of the copier <laughs> with one case that's just too juicy not to spy on, stopped by morals or not.
0: Yes. So what? So what? And another thing? Who cares? <laughs> but, Alex, I
2: did care.
3: Yeah, a lot of people do. All the people we talked to, the academics, the programmers, business owners and the government workers, they all confronted these moral decisions around digital privacy. that That's what stuck out to me.
2: But there's one last group that we sort of touched on this at the beginning, but we, we should talk about it a little more. Us. The users. I mean, I guess we don't really have a choice when it comes to government snooping, or not yet anyway. But every time we sign up for a new business service, we are given a choice, right? To comply with the company's terms of service, TOS, or just not sign up. And uh, we have a very righteous colleague. Killed his Instagram account when the company announced changes to its policies.
3: Yeah, sadness swept over the Instagram community after that.
2: Oh, I'm sure. Um, But let's face it. Most of us don't take a stand. I know that I am so guilty of seeing that little font. The pages and pages of it. Agree, 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 right? I mean, I'm never going to read any of that. Let's just get to using the platform already.
3: I had a feeling you would say that. Those are boring and incomprehensible most of the time, right? Unless... Unless they are read by a master.
1: You also agree that you will not use these products for any purposes prohibited by United States law, including the development or production of nuclear, missile, or chemical or biological weapons iTunes.
2: Shut up. That is not really an (laughs) iTunes terms of service. You can tell I definitely didn't read it. But listening to it is actually more entertaining, that's for sure.
3: Oh, it sure is in the iTunes terms of service, as read by WQXR's Jeff Spurgeon. The
2: king of classical music.
3: (laughs) He is. He is. And he could have his own quiz show, I think, after this. I asked him to help me make a point, right? So what I did was I said... You know, Manushi's not really the type to take a magnifying glass right, to a right. fine print of a privacy policy. I asked Jeff if he would play Quizmaster here on a Terms of Service quiz to keep it a little interesting,
2: okay? You ready? I'm going to look like an idiot. All right, go ahead.
1: Here goes. According to the privacy policy of the dating site OKCupid, which one of these is not, I repeat, not a permitted use of your personal data? A. To verify your eligibility and deliver you prizes in connection with sweepstakes. B. To include non-identifying elements of your profile in promotional materials. C, to manage our business. D, to register and display your profile on other online dating websites.
3: All right, right. got that, which is not in the OkCupid privacy policy.
2: I'm going to go with D because...
3: D. Yeah, because why would they... That they would put it on other people's, on other online dating sites.
2: Right, why would they want to help their competitors?
3: What's the answer? The answer
1: is... B.
2: Oh, all right. The so same then, company
3: that owns OKCupid okay also owns Match.com, and they want to spice up Match.coms with some of the sexier so OKCupid okay profiles.
2: If you sign up on OKCupid, okay then you could be put on Match.com as well.
3: If you read the privacy policy, these are the kinds of things you learn, Manouche.
2: All right. Well, this is why I don't read them. It's all very disturbing. All right. We came up
3: with a whole bunch of these. Which
2: you're going to post online, right?
3: In a full interactive quiz. You got it. Anyone can go (laughs) and take it and see if they uh, score better than uh, our host.
2: Okay. NewTechCity.org. And you can test your own paranoia or complacency there. And remember the big question today. Should there be a Hippocratic Oath for people who handle data and all our digital goodies? Tell us if you think, yes, there should, or no, Manush. leave it for the doctors. We're on Twitter at New Tech City, or go to my Facebook page. I'm Manoush Samarodi. This guy is Alex Goldmark. Peace out. See
3: you later,